morning and welcome to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. You're here with myself, Jaime, and with Carol. Welcome back, Carol. Thank you. It's been quite a while. Nice to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, what's been happening with you? <sighs> Probably quite a lot, but none of it of any great interest <laughs> to the listeners, so we'll move on. <laughs> Beautiful. And um, um, today we have a great show. I'm just uh, really, really excited about, about our guest this morning. Uh, her name is Shalina Mask. Um, and she's a senior lawyer um, at the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Rights Unit at the Human Rights Law Center. So really, really interested to talk to Shalina. I, I, I know her not very well, but I know her quite well, and I think she's going to make a fantastic guest. So um, we're going to play her first election, and then uh, when we're back, she should be with us. So let's hear this. <laughs> Sixties I've been in the desert And every night What a wonderful way Why to start switch? Oral B Pro Health Protect oh, So sorry about that What a wonderful way to start the morning Um uh, we should have our guest on the line. I'm I'm gonna let, let her um, uh, back announce this song. Shalina, what what did we hear? Uh, just then. I'm sorry, um, Jamie, I'm finding it really hard to oh. hear you, sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, let's try that again. Shalina, can you hear me now? It's a bit better, thank you. All right. Um, I was just saying, um, we just heard a, a, a song called My Island Home. Can you tell us a little bit about the band and why you chose it as well? Yeah, well, um, I chose this song because it's one of those go-to songs and I'm feeling kind of homesick. Um, I'm obviously from Darwin in the Northern Territory. I'm a Larrakia woman, and um, Larrakia people are saltwater people. And part of our country encapsulates uh, the Cox Peninsula, Gunpoint, and uh, Darwin Harbour. So um, every time I'm thinking about being home, it's around the saltwater. And uh, this is pretty much why I, I go back to this song. There's, there's some lines around we are saltwater people and um, our longing to be back home. Uh, well, Rumpy Band is the Aboriginal band um, from the Yarnland region and uh, uh, they talk about their island home um, and the singer talks about being in Alice Springs but the song's really about me being away from home and being in a strange place like a, a city uh, which is Melbourne now. Alright, so now, uh, thank you for that. I'm, I'm just going to introduce you properly. So our guest this morning is Shalina Mask. She's a senior lawyer at the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Rights Unit at the Human Rights Law Center. And um, it's our very pleasure to, to have you on. Shalina, I'm pretty sure that on a Monday morning you already have quite a few things to do. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot on. Um, yeah, we, we've got so much on our plate at the moment, um, largely around youth justice reforms in the Northern Territory in Victoria, but um, we've also got a coronial uh, inquiry that starts in a couple of weeks. Uh, that's in relation to the family of Tanya Day. Um, she died in police custody back in December of 2017 and uh, the two-week-plus hearing will be commencing at the end of August. So we've got a lot on our plate at the moment. Wow. Well, uh, we're, we're going to try to go back to your to your job and what you're doing, but I would like to start with, um, you know, from the beginning. So tell us a little bit about your, your upbringing and, and growing up um, in... In you know near the salt salt water. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was born in Darwin some decades ago, um, and I lived I have lived in Darwin for most of my life. 
bar maybe three years in Perth and the last two and a half years in Melbourne. Uh, I went to school locally, uh, all the local primary schools, so Malax, um, St Mary's and uh, then Sanderson High, went to Casuarina in the secondary and completed my tertiary uh, degree at Charles Darwin University. Um, back then it was Northern Territory University and yeah, graduated with a Bachelor of Laws. Um, I then was fortunate enough to be offered articles of clerkship back when they used to have articles uh, with the Director of Public Prosecutions Office in Darwin and worked as a Crown Prosecutor for a number of years. Um, but I've, over the last 20 years, I've oscillated between prosecutions and defence and prior to coming to the Human Rights Law Centre, worked for just around 10 years at the Aboriginal Legal Service in the NT, which was NAJA. Wow. Um, Charlena... You've, you've covered that incredibly quickly and there's, there's a lot of uh, accomplishments in there. I, I, I just wanted to ask you, did you always want to become a lawyer? No. Uh, it, it's hard to um, really put my finger on what were the factors that led to it. Um, I undertook a law degree thinking I'd just get a degree that would get me a nice, comfortable job in a government department. Um, never thought I'd be practising, never thought I'd actually gravitate into criminal law and um, had it not been for my auntie, she's an Aboriginal woman who uh, was working at the time in the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. Um, I don't think I would have even gone into practice, but she was able to encourage me and assist me and, and really help me stay um, in the Director of Public Prosecutions for, for many years. And uh, we had an amazing director at the time, Rex Wild QC, who he just led by example and I think it was being in a place where we had strong leadership and uh, a person like Rex who um, demonstrated all the best elements of um, of a boss in terms of uh, coming and seeing us every day, talking to us about our work, always fronting the media, always taking on the big cases. Uh, I think his work ethic and his passion for justice is part and parcel of the reason why I stayed in prosecutions for as long as I did and then um, encouraged me to stay in, in the criminal law. So that's, yeah, never thought I'd be a lawyer, um, but yeah, just doors open at the right time. Hi, Shalina, it's Carol here. Nice to meet Hi, you. Hi, Carol. Even though I can't see you. Um, just thinking about that the early work in the Office of Public Prosecutions, you were a very young graduate. It must have been quite eye-opening and at times quite traumatic work. How did you deal with all what you came across in that job? Yeah, um, I think, like I said, like my auntie uh, was working in there as a Crown Prosecutor at the time and um, and she was obviously a great support to me and a huge role model in my in my life at, the, at that time. And, um, and we did have an amazing group of uh, senior Crowns, um, people who have gone on to really amazing things. Two of them are judges in in the Northern Territory um, and yeah I've just had a lot of support and, and people there to talk to and um, one of my long-term mentors was uh, my um, mentor at the time uh, Mr Carey I still call him Mr Carey um, but he was one of those people who always had his door open someone to go to for advice and um, yeah they really did look after me and ensured like if I needed to talk through a case or I was feeling a bit down, that there was always someone that I knew I could go to 
So I think it was just having that support um, and, of course, people who had this open-door policy who was willing to offer advice but also comfort and connection when I needed it. Shalina, um, going to, um, you know, I think about a year ago you wrote an article for The Guardian um, and you, you basically talked about the fact that the justice system sort of is, is geared... Um, almost to cause further disadvantage. I, I don't want to, um, you know, quote your, your words, but um, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that um, in those early days, um, did you start to get a bit of a sense of that as well? About the justice system being broken? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I didn't want um, to be so blunt, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, it, it's been really hard because, I mean, it's half the reason why I left prosecutions and went to work at the Aboriginal Legal Service. Um... There, I felt there was only so much I could do um, in prosecution to try to change the system from the inside and I wanted to help my people. Um, it sounds kind of, uh, yeah, a bit of a truism there, but um, at the time I, I, was, I was just overwhelmed with the sense of injustice um, and unfairness and I just thought if I was there working in the Aboriginal Legal Service I could try to help um, adjust the balance. That's pretty much why I went over there. Um, and in my time in the Aboriginal Legal Service, particularly my later years at Naja, I had recognised that there were particular groups who were being failed by the justice system, and in particular Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, and hence why I got support from the board and the principal legal officer to start a standalone specialised youth justice team um, because children were being failed, children were being criminalised early and, and, and harmed by their contact with the justice system and um, yeah, I just thought if there's things I could do then hopefully um, we can make things a little bit better um, and I think <laughs> after feeling like I was just always putting a band-aid on a gaping wound, um, that's, that's pretty much why I came to the Human Rights Law Centre. I wanted to change laws and policies rather than just trying to be a small solution that wasn't stemming the flow of what I think is a, a real large gaping wound in the Territory. So, so Shalina, I, I would love for you to, um, to even, because I, I, obviously I know a little bit about this, uh, because we deal with this at work, but uh, some of our lis listeners may have no idea what you're talking about. I, I, I would love for you to to be even a bit more spe specific about things that you encountered that, you know, how how was the system unfair? And I, you know, I know that for some, for you, this is very obvious, but, uh, you know, just try to explain to our listeners some of the things yeah, that you saw. So maybe if I talk just from the Northern Territory, so growing up in the Territory, um, at least in Darwin, it was, you know, I grew up in a multicultural community. Um, a lot of my friends were Portuguese, Timorese, Greek, Malaysian. Uh, I never saw colour until I got older. Mm. Um, and I think really when I went to uni and um, started, and, and the law really opened my eyes to how laws and policies uh, or have been overwhelmingly discriminatory and racist in their application to Aboriginal people in the NT, as is the case all around Australia with um, the way our constitution was drafted, uh, the way that uh, colonisation um, came about in terms of dispossession, massacres, and these laws and policies, including the protection era, the assimilation era, and 
Um, and for me, like I, my great grandmother and great grandfather were people who were domestics um, who had to wear dog tags, who um, who were subjected to uh, certain rules around being able to walk the streets at night, not to consume alcohol, not to have wages. Um, my grandmother was a person who was placed in the half-caste home in the Northern Territory. And, um, yeah, and as you get older, you understand what this all means, but when you're young, you don't really understand that. Uh, but And then as I've gotten older, I've seen even more unjust, I couldn't say more, perhaps even, I think it's opening my eyes to other laws and policies that still are used to socially control uh, and also are quite paternalistic in their application. So in the NT, as an example, we still have such wide-reaching mandatory sentencing laws. Mm. That means people can be incarcerated for um, possession of cannabis, for possession of low-level drugs. Um, we have mandatory sentencing for property offending, mandatory sentencing for violent offending. We, in more recent years, have had all these alcohol laws which are designed to keep people off the streets and prevent them from drinking alcohol. We had mandatory alcohol treatment. We've had alcohol protection laws. We've Even now we've got really excessive protective custody laws which if someone's intoxicated on the street and may pose a danger to themselves or others, they could be swept off and locked in a police cell until they sober up, usually about 8 to 12 hours. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of unjust laws and policies which contribute to the normalisation of incarceration in the Northern Territory. And you can see that well over, I think it's around 84, if not 86% of the prison population in the NT encapsulates Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, when it comes to youth detention in the Northern Territory, uh, 96 to 100% of the kids in custody on any given day are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. Um, so I think the figures very much reflect a system that's geared to locking up Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and really condemning poverty and disadvantage as mm. opposed to a system which should be helping people to rebuild their lives, helping to address the factors that lead to, court, to offending behaviour, but instead it's, it's not. It's really about sweeping people off the street because they don't conform to uh, majority rule. Shalina, I just wanted to ask you about that uh, rel relatively recent initiative to um, to fundraise to pay fines for pe for women who ended up being in jail. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that if you if you know about it? Yeah, so uh, Sisters Inside, Debbie Kilroy, who just recently we were at an award ceremony um, on the weekend, Baltar Awards, and she was given an award for this very um, amazing initiative. Uh, and it, it does build off a lot of work from Aboriginal community controlled organisations in WA and even the Human Rights Law Centre's early involvement in the coronial of Miss Doo who died in police custody many years ago, um, having been apprehended for unpaid fines. She um, had a medical condition that was not, um, that police were not aware of and and which was um, which led to um, septicemia, and she died in police custody, um, complaining multiple times of being unwell and needing to see a doctor. Um, but yeah, so Deb Kilroy and sisters have started up a GoFundMe page to try to help recoup monies that will uh, allow the, 
the fines or outstanding penalty infringements of women in Western Australia to be paid off to avoid their imprisonment under these really draconian and um, outdated laws. Um, I think WA is the only jurisdiction which still allows um, imprisonment in lieu of unpaid fines without the other type of safeguards that we have in jurisdictions like New South Wales and even more recently in Victoria. Mm. Um, Yeah, which ensures that there is at least some judicial oversight of uh, the the warrants of commitment being issued. So um, that's what it's all about. It's trying to prevent women being imprisoned because they're poor. You listen to... Uh, Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. It is now 9.20 in the morning and uh, this morning we're talking to Shalina Musk who's a senior lawyer at the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Rights Unit at the Human Rights Law Center. And Shalina, we're just about to play your second selection if, if that's okay with you. Um, oh, go for it. So a bit more uh, salt water for you. This Donate Life Week, I wanted to talk to some of my friends and encourage them to join me on the donor register. So I sat down for a coffee with my best friend Talia and told her why I'm passionate about giving hope to those whose lives depend on receiving a transplant. Because if every registered donor found one person this week who wasn't and encouraged them to register, we would double the number of potential donors. One by one, it adds up. So visit donatelife.gov.au and tell your friends too. This project is sponsored by the Organ and Tissue Authority. You can get it milking a cow, come what may, even tossing some hay or listening to this DJ. Every Monday, 6 to 7pm, tune in to For Your Pleasure and have Dr Rock help rock your socks off. From the Beatles to Dire Straits and everything in between, right here on 98.9 Northwest FM. Hi, I'm Fitzy. And I'm Daz. And, and together, together, we are the Thursday Waffle. We'll sit around and chew the fat. We'll have AFL League teams. The good doctor will have his rant on the Polly Waffle, talking all things politics. We'll have dad jokes, weird and wonderful topics, limericks plus the occasional guests. Join Daz and Pete every Thursday night, 7 to 8 p.m. for the Thursday Waffle, right here on 98.9 Northwest FM. Northwest FM, it is indeed the radio station. As you can see, plenty of variety in our little station. Um, I hadn't I hadn't listened to a couple of those promos. Pretty amazing. <laughs> I was a bit worried we were advertising beer there for a minute. <laughs> now, um, uh, we should have our guest on the line, Shalina Musk. Uh, Shalina, we just heard a, a song called Baru by Saltwater Band. Tell us a little bit about what that one meant to you. Oh, gee. Um, that song... It comes from an album that uh, my then partner had uh, brought home one day after playing football, like he was playing for Darwin Buffaloes in the NTFL, and there was this uh, amazing um, man named Manuel Durke who was playing on his team at the time, and he um, had given him a copy of the album from his group. So it was Manuel Durke and Mr G um, used to be the other lead singer and uh, collaborator in Saltwater Band. But um, yeah, this was just an album that we kind of fell in love with back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And yeah, it was just one of the songs I really remember. But um, 
didn't know Mr D back then. It was Manuel Durke, who was the lead singer and kind of like the pop artist behind the group. Um, it was playing football. That's kind of like our connection to it. Well, and what does the track mean? What's the, the time? I'm not even sure. I couldn't tell you, but like I thought Baru um, is crocodile in the Northern Territory. Um, maybe we should do a Google search on that just to <laughs> understand what it means. Um, great sound anyway. No, I just forgot um, to mention if anyone wants to send a question for our guest, um, they can do so by sending us an SMS, o double four double seven double seven nine eight nine. Otherwise, they can also use uh, Twitter um, mad underscore village is our handle. Um, Alright, so Shalina, uh, we, um, we were just talking about lots of things that make the system broken and they basically make people... Um, more entrenched in their disadvantage rather than helping them. Um, and we've been talking about the Northern Territory and we've been talking about um, Western Australia as well, but I just wanted you to give us a sense um, whether our system is perfect in Victoria. I'm pretty sure it's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee. Um, I think, yeah, there's... I mean, you can look at every jurisdiction and they'll each have some really great initiatives which are making a difference and um, I think in in Victoria which is, um, is where I am now uh, there's a real focus on uh, diversion uh, for young people so we've got uh, court order diversion that is available at the Children's Court in Melbourne we've got youth uh, so victim offender conferencing which is available um, prior to sentencing so after a plea of guilty which I think is really remarkable I've been involved in youth offender conferencing in the Northern Territory and it's probably the most powerful and I think um, effective response to young people involved in crime where the victim or victims of offences are able to have their voice heard where they can meet with the offender and and seek to have um, some sort of sense of healing through a process which, um, if it's just the formal criminal justice process, is very disengaging and, and I think, um, not effective when it comes to helping hold people to account, uh, enabling restorative justice to take place or reparations... Um, and I, I don't think the formal criminal justice system is very effective in trying to address the root causes of crime, whereas um, victim offender conferencing does. Mm. Um, so that is quite prominent in the Victorian youth justice system. And I know there are other pockets of initiatives which do make a difference, like Neighbourhood Justice Centre um, is uh, a holistic way of responding to crime which deals with often health issues and justice issues collectively and um, because people who commit crimes by and large do not just present with one issue um, people who have come before the courts and who um, are repeat offenders are people who by and large will have experienced adversity and or have um, issues that need appropriate treatment or supports whether or not it's drug and alcohol whether or not it's domestic and family violence um, or whether or not it's adverse traumas um, but I think yeah, if, if the better chance we've got is those types of holistic responses which view the, the offender as a human being that um, should be empowered to, to try to deal with the, the, the factors that have led them to offend and 
I think that's the better option when it comes to making our community safer. But at the same time, we also have some pretty draconian bail laws, for example. Um, yes. And our, our prisons are actually, um, you know, at almost at capacity. Yeah, so, I mean, it's been the case in most jurisdictions, but Victoria, it's, it's just remarkable how being leaders in criminal justice and in a human rights compliant jurisdiction to see it go down this path where um, and it's always the case uh, where tougher bail laws or tougher parole laws and policies come about is when there has been um, a really serious violent incident where someone may well have been on bail or may well have been subject to parole and they commit another crime that shocks the community and um, and politicians react in a way which is around toughening up um, oftentimes the toughening up is in response to a individual or maybe one or two individuals um, and it does undermine and detract from the progress that may well have been made in, in other initiatives. Shalina, if I may, if I may ask you this as well, um, in my view, a lot of those initiatives like mandatory sentencing, um, they actually remove um, the authority and discretion from, from, the, from the magistrates. And I think um, it basically disrespects them in a great way because they, it, it prevents them from actually looking at the circumstances of this per particular um, issue or person. Um, do you, would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. <laughs> I mean, we, we just recently, uh, well, probably well over 18 months ago, but the Australian Law Reform Commission, who were commissioned, well, entrusted by the Australian government to look into the legal frameworks, laws and policies which are contributing to the over-representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the prison system. And um, a whole chapter is devoted to sentencing laws, and in particular, um, many, many pages reflect on mandatory sentencing laws as removing the discretion of the court um, and, and, and really um, not allowing the courts to look into what are the drivers of the offending behaviour um, and how do we address those in a way which is, is going to be just and fair and take into account individual circumstances. And, yeah, it's like... Um, key recommendation was repeal mandatory sentencing laws. Mm. Mm. Well, um, look, we, ca we could talk um, about the broken system until the cows come home, but I also <laughs> I want to leave our listeners with a bit of a positive sense, huh? yes. and I definitely want to talk about some of the great things that you're doing to try to address all of that, and I, um, because I can, I would like to start with uh, raise the age, if, if we don't mind. Yeah, so it might, again, <laughs> I always feel like a bit talking about depressing things when we talk <laughs> about the criminal justice system and the youth justice system, but probably the most depressing thing for me is um, the minimum age of criminal responsibility in Australia. So all jurisdictions, including Victoria, have set the age of criminal responsibility at 10. So 10 years, I've got a niece who's nine, and um, I can't imagine her being locked up for um, a criminal offence because her she's just so young and innocent and she clearly makes these really silly mistakes when she's excited and she doesn't think through the consequences of her action. And that's what we know about children this young. Children who should be in grades four or five um, can be locked up um, under these laws for the commission of the physical acts of a crime. Um, 
and what we know, and there has been advances in brain science uh, around child and adolescent development, but children this young, parts of their brain responsible for consequential thinking, for judgment, reasoning, they're just not fully formed and they won't be for, for many, many, many years later. Um, and children will just act on the sudden. They will um, do certain things, particularly when their peers are around or they're excited. Um, and so, and yeah, so, we've so got laws know. that mean children can be arrested by police, mm. charged with a criminal offence, hauled before a court and locked up in a, a youth prison like Parkville College or, sorry, Parkville Detention Centre or Dondale Detention Centre in the Northern Territory. Shalina, I just want, I wanted to say as well, going back to what you were saying, um, we know that a huge amount of um, people who are facing the justice system have been victims of, of crime themselves. Many of them have been suffering trauma. Um, and for, for them, um, that issue of brain development becomes even more pressing. Uh, and again, we're just basically um, almost like piling, piling on the, the barriers uh, to actually do well. Yeah, so um, again, uh, and this is really, I can talk from my experience, but also there has been recent reports or inquiries looking into um, what do we know about the children who are coming before the courts this young, so the 10 and 11 year olds, what has been their experiences and what is leading them into contact with the justice system. But children this young are often well known to the child protection system. They are victims, um, survivors of perhaps physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect um, and adverse trauma and these are the children who are being criminalised early and being funnelled through the youth justice system and ending up in youth prisons. Um, I've met many young children as young as 10 and 11 in the Northern Territory as a youth lawyer. Five years I was the senior youth lawyer in the, in the Aboriginal Legal Service up there and the children who came before the courts aged 10 or 11 were children who were well known to the child protection system. Um, who had really horrific backgrounds, children who had experienced substantial abuse um, and had, especially the, the 10-year-olds that I dealt with, and I can count them on one hand, but there were, there were about four or five in my years there who kept coming back and um, the majority of them had post-traumatic stress disorder mm. and really, really challenging behaviours, but... Um, they were victims and remain victims, yet they were acting out and doing things, um, including offences like assault worker because they were under um, a protection order, they were in residential care mm. and their trauma wasn't being at appropriately responded to. They weren't getting the supports and, and assistance they needed and, um, and we were just re-traumatising these kids and they were the ones that we were sending to Dondale. Um yeah, it was really hard being a lawyer in the NT when we saw these young people coming through. But that's that's what our justice system is is doing to young kids. There, of course, there's a lot of reform happening up there at the moment. Mm. Um, we had a royal commission into child protection and youth detention up there, and as is the case in all other jurisdictions around Australia, Victoria, you had a, a review of the youth justice system here by Ogluff and Armitage with a raft of recommendations as to what needs to happen to ensure that it's effective, responsive, and and really um, responsive to the, the young children with their experiences, with their unique needs, um, in a way that we can ensure that they're not further criminalised, we're not further harming them, and we're actually ensuring that they're not committing further offences. So there's a long way to go, but there is a roadmap there in most jurisdictions 
um, like I said, there's been an inquiry in, in the NT with the Royal Commission. There's an inquiry that's happened here in terms of youth detention and youth justice. There was an inquiry into Queensland youth detention and youth justice, again, with roadmaps as to what needs to happen. Um, and a strong focus in all of them is around trying to prevent children coming into contact in the first place, identifying these children early when they present with challenging behaviours or substantial risk and ensuring that they get the, the treatment supports and services they need so that we can keep them in schools, keep them with their families and allow them to grow up strong and reach their potential. So um, I'm not saying it's all doom and gloom, but I think one of the best ways of trying to prevent harming and uh, criminalisation of vulnerable kids is to raise the age of criminal responsibility. So, um, Shalina, that's, I couldn't agree more with all of that. I, I just wanted to uh, point to our listeners as well um, the Crossover Kids report that was issued recently by the Sentencing Council of Victoria. Uh, talking about the very same issues that you that you have just discussed, tell me a little bit about how much traction uh, you're you're getting from uh, the campaign to raise the age. Yeah, well, um, it it isn't hasn't in fact been a campaign for us. It's been um, it's been a journey of learning and like when we first started out, um, I'd just come over from Naja in the Northern Territory, um, and the Royal Commission was still receiving evidence um, and and we were trying to um, use what we knew coming from international law, what was coming from the experts on child rights, the Committee on the Rights of the Child, that the age of criminal responsibility in, this, in Australia was so low, it's out of touch with uh, most modern jurisdictions, the medium age across um, the world, uh, I think it's around 12, if not 14. Um, some jurisdictions have 15, 16. And yet Australia's got 10, and it has been 10 for for an extraordinary long time, even though other jurisdictions have raised it to 12, 14, and, and 16 in some cases. Um, what we've had now is the Royal Commission and the MT who's looked which looked into what exists in other jurisdictions, what is best practice, and they recommended the NT raise the age to 12, so no child under 12 could be charged with a criminal offence or locked up. But if a child is 12 or 13, so under 14, no child should be imprisoned mm. in youth detention centres in the NT unless they present with serious offences and they pose a serious risk to the community. Um, and that's and that's just one inquiry in New South Wales. Uh, an inquiry into youth diversion there also recommended that uh, New South Wales government raise the age to 12. Um, in Queensland, that the recent inquiry that was run by Atkinson recommended that the Queensland government work towards raising the age to 12 and not imprison any child under 14. Um, have any so of there these is, recommendations there, been There's been a number of inquiries that have all said the same thing um, and we just we just need to keep this going. Shalina, have any of these recommendations been accepted by the respective governments? Well, uh, another complicating factor in all of this is um, the Attorney-General's across Australia, the Council of Attorney Generals um, in November of uh, last year um, met and they uh, resolved to create a working group to look into this issue and they meant to report back in November of this year um, on the issue, whether or not we should raise the age of criminal responsibility and if we do, what should be the appropriate response. 
so that's happening um, in tandem to all of this. And I think um, I, I think many governments across Australia are waiting to see the outcome of this working group's work. And how do you feel that working group is leaning? Have you got any sense of where it might be going? Is it well, it hasn't been the subject of public um, consultation. So it, to me, it is concerning um, where we do have a lot of expertise across Australia. Um, I mean, in the work that we do around the adjacent responsibility, it's not just Human Rights Law Centre as the um, the only people in this space. We have partnered with uh, Aboriginal community control organisations like the Aboriginal Legal Services, um, the National uh, Aboriginal um, Violence Prevention Legal Services. We partnered with the Rural um, Australian uh, Council of Pediatricians, with the Australian Medical Association. There's all these experts um, that bring their own uh, knowledge and um, understandings of the unique issues uh, from different perspectives, like I said, with medical associations, health organisations, legal organisations, human rights organisations, child rights organisations like CREATE. They're all um, organisations who bring a unique perspective um, and are all calling for the age of criminal responsibility to be raised and... um, one would have thought uh, the councils of attorney generals would be meeting with these experts that bring these quite um, distinct and uh, different perspectives um, to provide the evidence base. And uh, I would have thought the strong arguments um, to raise the age of criminal responsibility, because it's not just around what you know what international law requires or what experts from the committee on the rights of the child are saying. This is around doing what is right for our children building off the evidence when it comes to child and adolescent development, what we know about social science, the implications of early criminalisation and incarceration on kids, and also what actually works when it comes to responding to children in trouble with the law. Shalina, um, I'm really torn because it, listening to you is fascinating, but we actually have two songs that we have to play that you have chosen. <laughs> so we're going to go f- with the next one now, okay? And we'll come back soon. Okay, let's do that. Thank you. Wow. What a great finish. So that was Colored Stone, Dancing in the Moon. Uh, Shalina, tell us about this, this track. Oh, look, there's no story behind this song. It's just, it's just an amazing song. <laughs> you just want to let those kick up your heels, I think. Well, just as well, um, because we really don't have much time left. Only about seven minutes or six minutes. <laughs> um, so, Shalina, um, you've spoke, you have spoken so eloquently about why we need to change some of those um, laws and policies and regulations. Um, And it seems that there is a mountain of scientific evidence and evidence from practitioners. So why are these things not happening? Gee, uh, I think, yeah, so maybe we could take the NT experience just for now, but um, like I said, we had a Royal Commission, well over 18 months of evidence being taken from experts, children, young people, families, communities right around um, the Northern Territory and nationally and internationally and and of course well over 200 recommendations as to what needs to change in child protection and youth justice. And I, I think in the first 12 months there was a real appetite for change and the government was quite vocal, was quite animated in um, in 
their position on this. But um, what has happened is um, momentum is getting lost. Um, there is ongoing issues around certain pockets of the Northern Territory where there is a, a, a level of um, maybe, I shouldn't say just heightened crime, but more um, politicisation and polarisation of um, youth crime in Palmerston, which is an, a, one of the satellite cities to Darwin, the capital. Um, and that's causing fear in the community, driven by... Uh, the prominent media in, in the community, which is the NTN News. Mm. Um, and that's what's happening. It's it's where there is sensationalised reporting, there are people feeling like they're not being heard, and, um, and yeah, that's, that's what's happening. It, politicians are getting scared, um, and they're not out there holding the line, they're not out there again, reiterating why we need to be doing these things. So, um, and do you think that it, it's it's a lot simpler to say we need to be tough on crime than to actually explain? Oh, uh, definitely. <laughs> um, so that's, definitely. Th that's also a, a big issue, the 24-7 media cycle, isn't it? And, you know, my own, my own personal recommendation would be to shut down the Herald Sun and the uh, <laughs> Territory newspaper as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's, it's really hard because... Um, yeah, I think when politicians or key decision makers um, believe in a, a policy or law change, they should be out front and centre, leading by example, holding the line, um, reiterating why these changes need to take place and not allowing fear or scare tactics to to undermine that. And um, I, I do think it comes down to strong leadership and political will. All right, Shalina, um, all we have now time left for is to, first of all, say thank you. You've been an, an inspiring guest. I have learned so much today. Um, and also, perhaps you can just um, introduce the song, the next song to, to our listeners. Archie wrote, obviously, doesn't need an introduction, but this song called Down City Street. Yeah, um, I think, look, I've always loved Archie wrote. Um, his music's been quite impactful for me um, I think the main one is um, took children away um, but this one living now in Melbourne I live the next suburb from Fitzroy and my understanding is this song is, is very much around his early years um, when he was caught up in a lot of strife um, yeah and I think it's just that for me um, understanding that people have experienced will experience adversity in their times but they can come through on the other side um, and that's pretty much why I chose that song. Fantastic to, f to finish on a message of hope um, Yes, <laughs> thank for what? <laughs> <laughs> Alright, Shalina li listen, r thank you so much for taking the time today, I know how busy you are so we really really appreciate you being with us Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, thank you Thanks, Thanks for having me. No worries, and that was Shalina Musk um, from the Human Rights Law Centre um, and let's listen to Archie Rhodes and we will see you all next week. Okay. Th thank Bye. you, Carol. Bye-bye. Bye. Down city streets I would roam I had no bed I had no 